welcome to Conversations. We aim to bring you lively discussion with a range of investment experts focused on concepts and outcomes of interest to you and your clients. This series is focusing on silver linings, that advantage that arises from a challenging situation. Shaky banks, the US debt ceiling and ongoing inflation fears continue to rattle the cages of global markets. Today, I'm joined by GSFM CEO, Damien McIntyre and Kieran Moore, Portfolio Manager at our global growth partner, Munro Partners. Before I hand over, I need to read this important notice. The information contained in this podcast is general and does not consider your objectives, financial situations or needs. The information and views contained in this update reflects as at the date of recording the current opinions of the participants and are subject to change without notice. Before making an investment decision in relation to a fund, investors should consider the appropriateness of this information, having regard to their own objectives, financial situation and needs, and read and consider both the product disclosure statement and the additional information. GSFM Responsible Entity Services has produced a target market determination in relation to all of the GSFM funds. The TMD sets out the class of persons who comprise the target market for the various funds, which can be downloaded from our website. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday the 23rd of May 2023. Damo and Kieran, over to you. Thank you, Tracy, and welcome, Kieran, to our podcast series, Silver Linings. The purpose of these discussions really is just to pick brains of our funds management partners to provide insights into how you're seeing the markets and companies you're playing, which in turn can be of value to our clients, the financial planning community, in their discussions with their clients. So to kick things off, it's been a tough period for growth equities, Kieran. How are you seeing 2023 so far? Yeah, thanks for having me. I suppose, first of all, what we've had to deal with in 2022 is is some pretty significant interest rate rises, which impact obviously not only growth equities, but really all asset classes. Uh, So the Fed's had to move from effectively zero to to basically 5% interest rates in a very short space of time which meant it was a difficult year and a volatile year for, for a lot of equities out there. I think for us, you know, pleasingly, we, we are starting to see some really good opportunities in the market today. And I think the way we think about it and the way you should think about us as a, as a growth investor is really through these areas of interest or these areas of structural growth within which we go away and try and find those bottom-up scenarios. So where we're looking for opportunities and where we see opportunities for earnings growth at the moment really is in our top areas of interest. So at the moment, that, that includes things like high-performance computing, which is around our semi conductor bet. And that bet is really focused on benefiting from, I guess, the AI evolution or the AI era, as we like to call it. Things like emerging consumer, which is our focus on emerging middle-class consumer, is actually accelerating at the moment. Innovative healthcare, we're seeing some good acceleration in the earnings profiles of, of the companies within that area at the moment as well. And then I guess the last one I'd call out in 2023, which we've seen a big catalyst for in 2022, which was the IRA bill, is is really our climate change area of interest where the fundamentals for these companies has actually really improved over the last 12 months. But the stocks, we don't think are fully reflecting that opportunity today. Interesting. We'll come back and discuss those areas of interest and specific opportunities you see within those areas later on. But if we just wind the hands of time back to 22, and 22 was a particularly volatile year for the markets. As you say, there was really nowhere to hide. Every asset class seemed to be affected. We use or Munro uses capital protection as part of its investment process. Can you explain how you implement that and specifically what you're looking for to either put protection on or take protection off? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good question and something that I think is important for investors to understand. So in our absolute return fund, which is our our long short strategy, and remember the objective of that fund is to deliver a a positive absolute return over a three to five year period. And we think that positive absolute return should equal roughly double digits over that period. And so we're going to get that return from investing in what we think are some of the best growth companies in the world and finding those growth companies and bringing them back to the client base to, I guess, manage the bumps along the way and try and smooth out that period of returns, you know, we have these capital preservation tools that we can use to effectively manage through those difficult periods in the markets like in 2022. So some of those tools include things like put options, where we've got the ability to buy small amounts of downside protection on the market. So a put option on the S&P, for example. We've got the ability to vary that net and gross exposure in the long short fund, so hold higher levels of cash. So throughout 2022, for example, we held roughly 40% cash for a lot of the year to try and manage through those bumps along the way. Across all of our strategies, we employ stop losses. So that's a review process or a reaction function where if a stock falls 20% from its peak price since we bought the stock or from its cost price, we have a review or, or it triggers a reaction function for us to check the investment case of that stock. And that really helped us a lot throughout 2022. We obviously manage the currency as well for the base Australian dollar investor. So when you're investing offshore, you've got to be mindful of the currency impact on your overall return. So we have the ability to hedge the currency back to Australian dollars and obviously unhedge the currency, which can help through periods of volatility when you get a flight to safety and a move towards holding more US dollars. The last one and and obviously an important part of the process is is being able to short. So we've got the ability to short companies and short things like futures as well for capital preservation. And so I guess when we're using these tools, when we're using these extra tools to help us manage through the periods of volatility, what we're looking for and what we consistently do is we have a risk management meeting every week where we consistently look at a number of indicators on the market. And that's things like, you know, how quickly bond yields are moving how overexposed positioning might be in the market. We're looking at, you know, valuation on the fund and the beta of the fund and things like that. So it's really having the mindset of being able to preserve capital through periods of volatility and making sure we're then positioned well to be able to capture those returns on the other side of that. Coming back to interest rates, which really was the root cause of market volatility throughout 22 and into 23, what's your view there? Do you think we're almost done in terms of Fed rate hikes and the RBA here in Australia? Yeah, so what we've been consistently uh, messaging throughout 2022 is we're looking for effectively three signposts for us to get much more constructive on equity markets moving forward. The first of those is obviously interest rates. We would love to see a peak in long-term interest rates. And when we as a growth investor think about interest rates, we're generally thinking about the US 10-year yield as a good proxy for that long-term rate. And effectively, what you've seen throughout history is that as we've moved moved through periods of crises in markets or periods of volatility in markets, we've lowered interest rates and racked up more debt. And so over obviously over the last 10 years, we've had a great period where interest rates have been low as a growth investor, and that's provided a great backdrop. What we've had to deal with over the last 12 months is change in, in dynamic of interest rates. So that change in from effectively zero to about 5% interest rates by the Fed. We think that now what we're starting to see is inflation decelerate, particularly in the US month on month, and that's that's an improving backdrop. And so we, we think basically that most of the heavy lifting that the Fed has had to do or the interest rates have had to do is, is probably done. So the US 10 years settling back in that sort of three to 4% range is really it provides a great backdrop for growth equities on a medium term view. I think if you think about it, maybe in another way, there's simply too much debt in the world today to have interest rates significantly higher. 
So yes, we do think most of the heavy lifting is now done on the interest rate side of things. What we're watching for and what we're mindful of is the effect of those interest rate rises on corporate earnings. Typically, I think when you have a period where the Fed's had to rise or raise interest rates from nothing to about 5%, you would expect there to be some damage to the underlying economy along the way. And that's what we're looking for now and what, what we're really mindful of. Yeah, whether it's the Fed or whether it's the RBA in this country, every time they move rates up, the reaction in markets is immediate, but there's a lag for the consumer and indeed That's it. and a lag for customers. So so what sort of lags are you looking for? Are you saying that earnings will be impacted over two quarters, three quarters? What timeframes are you looking for there? Look, we're actually a little bit surprised that it hasn't happened already to a certain extent in a lot of businesses out there. I think from our point of view, what we are realising though is that now that interest rates have peaked, we are starting to see an improvement in, in corporate earnings of the sectors and the companies that we're looking at. So maybe to give you some examples here. So Google or Alphabet, many people are familiar with the investment case or, or the search engine, which obviously has many other businesses as part of it. Their earnings are actually starting to turn. So they've worn some of that pain on the earnings side. They've, they've cut costs and they've worn some of that top line deceleration in their advertising businesses. And now their earnings are starting to turn and starting to improve again. So we're actually cautiously quite optimistic about some of the earnings growth profiles of the companies and areas of interest that we are looking at. Where we're still a little bit hesitant and mindful of the effect of this these interest rate rises is on companies that are more exposed to the macro. Companies, to give you some examples, something like the US Rails, for example, parts of the consumer, potentially parts of the auto market, even things like recruitment providers, where we think there's more susceptibility for their earnings to be impacted by the macro situation. But under the surface for us and what we're trying to do in trying to find some of the best growth companies out there, we're starting to see the earnings profiles improve and we're starting to see the earnings profiles turn, which gives us, gives us cause for optimism. It's interesting you make a remark about autos as a, as a case in point. I read recently that auto sales in the US are slowing largely because cars are at their most expensive in history. And I, I'm pretty sure I read that the average new car was 34000 US dollars, which is quite a big number. Yeah, uh, and what you would expect to see through that sort of period is people hang on to their car and, and then obviously run it for longer and therefore, you know, replacement cycles and, and services and things like that really kick in. So there's a tangible sort of painful example of supply chain issues coupled with inflation. That's right. Driving the, the raw cost of those cars up. That's right. Now, for a long time, Munro's been a fan of the digital payments sector of the market. And it's interesting, in Australia, we've been comfortable with tapping and going for quite some time. So it, it almost seems surreal to us that the world is behind us in terms of the adoption of that technology. So can you take, take us through what digital payments means as an investment idea and where you see its evolution in much broader markets like the US and Europe? Yeah, that's right. So this is a really easy one, actually. And, and what we're consistently looking for when we find opportunities in the market is we're, we love to find these things called S-curves, so adoption curves, so the penetration of, of something within an industry. The best example is that Apple smartphone example that we've all seen over the years where the smartphones took share of the global mobile phone market. And that was a structural change in the industry. And Digital payments really is no different. So digital payments is one of our oldest areas of interest and it is really about that shift from physical to digital cash. So that S-curve, if you like, where digital cash or digital wallets effectively penetrate the payment market, whether it's consumer payments, business payments, over time and that is a structural change in the industry that we can all benefit in and invest in. So digital payments we think is roughly 60 to 70% penetrated. So yes, we are really familiar with it in Australia and, and in places like Canada, they're all very familiar with 
with it. But really in the US, you know, tap and go is still finding its feet in terms of penetration and emerging markets are still finding their feet in terms of digital payment penetration. So digital payments for us, really, there's three, I guess, big drivers. Firstly, e-commerce, which we're all very familiar with, and we all saw the proliferation of e-commerce through the COVID period. You need to be able to pay for things online digitally. Secondly, tap and go, as you mentioned, it's become a pretty core technology or core piece of technology for consumers in their everyday lives. And again, that penetration of tap and go is far lower in some of these emerging markets around the world. And then emerging markets themselves. So the move to purely away from cash into digital forms of payment in emerging markets is something that's driving this. So I think for us, the way we've invested in the digital payments area of interest over a long period of time is through businesses like Visa MasterCard. So these businesses, are they effectively provide the rails or the networks for the digital payment ecosystem. So what that means is they connect you, Damien, as, as a customer to the merchant when you go and buy something. So the merchant might op- operate with a different bank, you might operate with a different bank and, and Visa MasterCard effectively connect the two and provide the security and transparency and accountability around that transaction. So really they're very, very difficult businesses to disrupt. So that makes the investment case really, really strong over the long term. So they're about capturing more and more volume. I, you know, an incremental transaction that might go through Visa doesn't really cost them anything. And so that volume gets processed at a really, really high margin. So these are some of the best businesses where there's a structural tailwind in the world and they can grow their earnings in a really meaningful way over the long term because of that tailwind. So in every sector, there are emerging leaders, three stocks that we've invested in over a period of time, MasterCard, Visa, PayPal. What's your view on PayPal now? Are they the loser in the latest leg of evolution of digital payments? Yeah, so so they're still in our investment universe, PayPal. It's been a good investment for us over the journey. I think if you think about, let's just take this big picture. If you think about the digital payments ecosystem, in the future or, or quite possibly almost now, it's possible for an individual to, to live their whole financial life outside of their mortgage through a digital wallet. So they can get paid their salary into their PayPal account. They can transfer money between individuals. They can pay for things, et cetera, et cetera. And so PayPal really provided that potential to develop that ecosystem type model. What's happened with PayPal is that effectively competitive pressures through things like Apple Pay. So Apple is taking a lot of share in in the payments ecosystem, particularly for online transactions, coming back to that e-commerce big structural driver. And they've, they've lost a bit of share Coupled with that, they've had some idiosyncratic issues. So there's been some management changes and things like that. Uh, And we really don't have a clear line of sight into their earnings durability over the medium term. So that's why we've stepped away from that one. And and coming back to your first question, it's a good example of our stop loss risk management process coming into practice. Yes. So as the the share price declined, forced it back for discussion, unfortunately led to its That's exactly right. What are Apple attempting to do in this space? I'm a convert to Apple Pay. I have several credit cards stored on my phone and I use them, unfortunately, too regularly. But what are they trying to do now? Are they trying to to set up a deposit vehicle and encourage consumers to give them cash, which they can then use off their own? That's right. Apple is a bit of a sleeping giant in the payment ecosystem. So really, funnily enough, you might ask what they're trying to do. They haven't actually put a whole heap of resources and effort into this yet. By virtue of the fact that you're carrying your phone in your pocket at all times every day means that if you can pay for things with that phone, it becomes a really, really simple transaction to process. So Apple has really taken share in the online wallet space. You can pretty easily pay for things, as we all know, with with our iPhone these days. So the potentially scary part for businesses like PayPal, where we've seen 
some of that disruption risk is if Apple really starts to move the needle here and really starts to put resources and focus behind this opportunity to gain share, then some of the digital wallets out there or digital payment ecosystems, you know, are at risk by virtue of the big company coming into this space. Yeah. And there's certainly an organisation with massive penetration across all geography. Now, AI, this is a chat GPT in particular. It's at the forefront of discussion, certainly for all of 2023 so far. And many say that it's been a driver of interest and price appreciation or depreciation throughout 23. Tell us about it. Who are the winners and users in this technology space? What's its base purpose? There's lots of opportunities for AI to play into all sorts of industries. And we've started to see this through even things like quick service restaurants using AI to effectively change ordering processes and ordering patterns. We've seen it in online education so far. So the total addressable market for AI applications is really almost limitless if you think about it today. So there are thousands of corporates out there that want to deploy AI into their everyday processes that you and I as consumers, Damien, are going to interact with. The way we want to invest to capture this and and the way we've consistently found growth opportunities over the years is through enablers of these certain types of technologies. And we think through our high performance computing area of interest, we think the semiconductor industry is a great way to invest in enablers of artificial intelligence applications. So because we know that AI is accelerating at the moment, and maybe to give you a quick example of that acceleration, we've seen ChatGPT take off. You know, it effectively got to a million users in five days. That compares to Facebook getting to a million users in 10 months. That compares to Netflix getting to a million users in three and a half years. So we're seeing that acceleration, which we think is great for the semiconductor industry. So we think the semiconductor industry is about to move into its fourth era, call it. Um, So you've seen semiconductors in mainframes. You've seen it in the PC era where we all got internet at home. You've seen it in the mobile era where, to your smartphone example, we all took the internet around with us wherever we went. Now the semiconductor industry is focused towards this AI era. And we think that's going to accelerate the semiconductor market. We think it's going to cause a doubling in size of the semiconductor market and that doubling in size is going to happen over a relatively short period of time. So that's great for companies that can provide the high performance compute chips that power these AI applications, I enable them to work. So semiconductors like the design companies like NVIDIA, for example, is at the forefront of this opportunity and the company has acknowledged multiple times when we've spoken to them that their revenue opportunity is accelerating because of this. In behind NVIDIA, you've got companies like the Foundry Company like TSMC, for example. So the foundries actually create the chips. So they build the chips for companies like NVIDIA to then sell to companies to deploy them. Behind the foundries, you've got the tool companies. And this is where our investment in ASML sits. ASML is effectively a monopoly in what's called the lithography tool. And that tool is critical to develop the most high-end semiconductors. So what you've got is effectively a, a chain or a pyramid, if you like, of semiconductor investment opportunities that starts with the tool companies like ASML, moves into the foundry companies who build the chips like TSMC, and then moves into the semiconductor design companies like NVIDIA that design the chips and then sell them to the big compute guys. So we think the semiconductor market is a great way to invest in enablers of artificial intelligence. We think the other way for investors to participate in this is through hyperscale computing, so cloud computing. So if you're BMW or Wendy's or McDonald's or Mercedes who want to deploy AI in your business for your customers to interact with, then you're going to need a hosting platform for that compute power. And so that's where businesses like AWS, which is part of Amazon, Amazon Web Services, 
GCP, which is part of Google, Google Cloud Platform, and Microsoft Azure, which is obviously a Microsoft business. Those three hyperscale cloud computing platforms enable those AI applications to exist. So really, there's two ways we think of investing in this opportunity. It's through the enablers in the semiconductors and the hyperscale cloud computing companies. So if we were to sort of wind the hands of time back, so 1.0 of AI, if you like, is you and I are on our computer looking for, we may even be talking about going on a holiday or buying a car or we browse the web for these items and then, hey, presto, for the next days and and weeks, ads mysteriously appear on our computers profiling the products that we looked at. If you like, that was 1.0 of AI. Another good example there is, is being recommended shows on Netflix. Get recommended shows based on your demographic based on your age, your location, all that sort of thing. And that's a basic AI application. And I'm just trying to understand how this ultimately generate greater chip sales. Is it more sophisticated devices that need a higher deployment of chips? How does that manifest itself? So it's actually more sophisticated chips. So there are fewer and fewer companies that can provide the chips with enough compute power and enough ability to process these applications that are now going to be start to happen in real time. So when we think about compute processing, if you think about what NVIDIA's doing through their CUDA architecture. And now I won't get too technical here, but they're effectively moving to a world of parallel processing where you combine traditional CPUs or central processing units in a computer with GPUs, graphics processing units, you combine them together to form a new way to compute certain processes. So that's called parallel processing. And NVIDIA is really at the forefront of that compute methodology today. And so what you ultimately need to to keep it fairly simple is you need high-end technology. So you need high-end chips with the ability to process that compute power in a faster and, and more fluid environment. Okay. Let's just talk about the emerging consumer for a moment. And China, for example, is a geography that we all think of as being rich in emerging consumers. China had its issues last year with COVID, had a long and painful shutdown. China's now, for want of a better description, open. How's that playing out? Are we seeing that reflected in higher demand and sales? We are. In our emerging consumer area of interest, which is an area focused on the emerging middle class consumer, that contains businesses like Louis Vuitton, like Richemont, that are luxury goods companies. So Louis Vuitton, obviously, you know, many of the listeners will be familiar with all their brands. Richemont obviously owns the Cartier brand. Those businesses are actually seeing an acceleration based on the Chinese economy and in particular the Chinese consumer now being able to travel again and obviously spend like they have done in the past on, on some of these goods and some of these products. So if you think about what the Chinese consumer meant for a company like Louis Vuitton or a company like Richemont, the Chinese consumer as a percentage of their sales prior to COVID was a far bigger percentage, obviously, since COVID happened because the Chinese couldn't travel and then they couldn't spend on these products. If we go to a world where the Chinese consumer gets back to that same percentage of sales for these businesses, then that ultimately equates to earnings upgrades for these companies. So yes, we are seeing a really positive acceleration in the earnings power of these businesses by virtue of this big catalyst, which is the Chinese economy reopening. The other thing to note here is that surprises us that Louis Vuitton's a roughly $300 billion company. It's a really well understood business and, and modelled by a lot of the street. What was so significant and so powerful about this Chinese consumer reopening and this tailwind is that, you know, they beat estimates by a significant amount in their most recent quarter. And and that shows the power and shows the, the drivers at play here that they can consistently surprise the investor base and surprise consensus to the upside because this group of consumers is so strong. 
notwithstanding the attraction of the Chinese market and in particular positive impacts for Louis Vuitton is just illustrated. What we discovered in COVID, they are a highly political command economy. So they can decide they like you and dislike you almost as quickly as each other. There were big casualties in Australia, for example, like wine companies. So I suppose the question I ask, do you think companies have, have learnt much out of this experience? And do you think many companies are still long China? Look, I think the way I would think about it is that there is a big structural tailwind here with the population of China that is growing in terms of size and also growing in terms of their wealth. So another investment opportunity that we've looked at over the years is the companies that exist in the Baidu space, which is the Chinese premium alcoholic spirit. Uh, And so when you look at the power of this group of people and their spending ability, that does provide a great structural tailwind. Now, you've obviously got to be mindful of the geopolitical risks and and other uh, sovereign risks, et cetera, that come with that. And I think that's where you need to be mindful of the price you're paying for some of these businesses. And, and that's where the multiple of these stocks may be impacted. Okay. So just coming back to some of these high profile names that suffered as a result of falling foul of Beijing, how do you access those? Do you access those through Western companies that are looking to monopolize Chinese experience or are you treading, you're going back into buying China stock? No, so we haven't gone back into China directly. We're always focused on earnings growth as part of our process. That's that's a core tenet to our investment philosophy. And the reason we stepped away from China initially sort of a couple of years ago is, is because we couldn't get clarity on the earnings profile of these businesses. So the way we've chosen to play this theme is through the best beneficiaries in the Western world. So those luxury goods companies, for example, that have that tailwind from Chinese demographics and Chinese spending and also sales within China, but sales all around the world as a result of that Chinese consumer. Another good example is a business like Airbus, which exists in a duopoly market. It is one of two producers of a plane that we are knowingly going to get on as consumers. And so that is another way to play this theme of of the emerging Chinese consumer. Just on aeroplanes for a moment, Boeing famously got itself into trouble over the MAX. Your observations of Boeing's recovery? Yeah, so we don't uh, currently own Boeing and therefore don't have a strong view. I mean, ultimately, as I said, our process is really all about earnings growth. And and when they had those issues, it really clouded the judgment for us around the earnings power of the company in the near term. So that's why we stepped away from that one. And again, it's that stop loss process working in action there. Now, we've spoken about the emerging consumer. We've spoken about AI. Are there any other areas of interest you want to quickly run through? Yeah, look, I'll just briefly touch on the innovative health area of interest. And innovative health for us is all about rising healthcare costs and improving patient outcomes all around the world. So again, it's it's another example where growth investing doesn't have to be technology or software or semiconductors. It can be in these areas like emerging consumer, like climate change, like innovative healthcare. So an area where we're focused within the innovative health area of interest at the moment is these obesity drugs. So at the moment, there's two companies, one in Europe, Nova Nordisk, and one in the US. USC Low Lilly, that are effectively at the forefront of, we think, a massive opportunity in providing pharmaceuticals to treat a big population, which is the obese population. Uh, so in time, we think this market could be in excess of $50 billion in size. Today, you've got two companies at the forefront of that making pharmaceuticals. Another way to think about the opportunity here is that if we look at the obese population around the world, there's roughly roughly 650 million people classified as, as obese, and only 2% of those people are treated with 
with pharmaceutical. So if we now have a direct pharmaceutical that we can administer and deploy and is safe and is covered by insurance and all those types of things that lifts that penetration from 2%, let's say to 4% or 5%, that is going to translate into really powerful earnings growth for these companies. So that's another area where we're seeing an acceleration at the moment and, and the estimates are getting surpassed by when the companies are reporting the results for these drugs at the moment. So that is an area of earnings acceleration at the moment. That's, that's one more I'd call out. Interestingly, just on that point, I've read in the press in recent months that supply can't catch up with demand. Uh, is that still present? Yeah, so that's something we are watching and Novo Nordisk has certainly had their issues with that in the past. We've looked at Eli Lilly is investing in uh, extra facilities, manufacturing facilities to be able to deal with that. But I think what is pleasing to see is that the demand for this product, as you said, is so strong. We just need to be mindful of the supply situation for both of these companies that they can at least match or at least provide the supply required to meet that demand. Because ultimately, if they can't, then that's going to impact their earnings profiles. Yes. Now, I just wanted to quick talk about a couple of the funds being the Munro Global Growth Fund and the listed equivalent mate. Can you just summarise why would an advisor use an absolute return product, be it either the unlisted or listed? What's the advantage of an absolute return product, particularly in growth equities? Yeah, so what we do, ultimately what we do is try and find some of the best global growth investments from all around the world and bring them back to our Australian investor base. In the Monroe Global Growth Fund, as we sort of talked about earlier, Damien, what we do is provide an objective there to give you that positive absolute return over the sort of three to five year period. That return is obviously being impacted by the use of capital preservation tools. When you know we do go through these periods like in 2022, where we had interest rates going up and, and volatility. And so the ability to deploy those capital preservation tools helps protect or helps strive us towards achieving that absolute return. And I trying to help us not to lose too much money through periods of volatility. If as an advisor, you are doing the asset allocation yourself and want pure exposure to global growth equities that is fully invested all the time, some of our best ideas, then that's where the long only portfolio might suit your needs. The Munro Global Growth Fund is really designed to give you those exposure to the great ideas that we're finding, but to do it in a way where we actively manage for volatility and actively try and preserve capital through periods of volatility. Now, clearly the tools work differently depending on the type of correction we're in. Maybe a quick example, it's very easy to buy a put for potentially a, a COVID type scenario where there's a virus out there in China and we don't know whether it's going to explode to the rest of the world or not. And so that's an easy scenario to buy a put for compared to, let's say, 12 months of interest rate rises. So the tools definitely work differently depending on the type of correction. But if you want exposure to the idea generation in those areas of interest with the capital preservation tools at play, then the Munro Global Growth Fund, the, the absolute return fund is probably most suited. It's a vehicle for you. Whilst we're on that and and this is a question without notice, so if you don't need to be basis point perfect here, but just roughly with the Global Growth Fund, where are you in terms of exposures? Yeah, so we've put a little bit of exposure back to work. I mentioned throughout 2022, we held a higher level of cash, so around that 40% cash, and we've put a good chunk of that back to work. So we're much closer to being fully invested. Our net exposure is around that sort of 90% mark. Uh, so we are much closer to being fully invested. And that's because, as I talked about earlier, we are seeing some acceleration in the earnings profiles of some great businesses that we like and have invested in. And we want to be there. So the remaining, how much put protection have we got on? What's your hedging exposures to the currencies, et cetera? 
Yeah, so at the moment we are slightly more hedged than not back to the Aussie dollars. So we've got slightly more than our 50%, which is roughly neutral over yep. the journey. 50% Aussie dollars, 50% US dollars. We're slightly more hedged at the moment than not. And in terms of puts, we are still using the puts and actively engaging with the puts as we come out of what hope are the last sort of phases of the bear market. So typically what we do with the puts is we're mindful of catalysts in the market that can create volatility. At the moment, we've got the debt ceiling issue going on. And so we've bought puts in anticipation to try and help manage volatility should that situation start to get out of hand, so to speak. Uh, so we're still mindful of, of catalysts in the market that can create volatility and we're still pretty actively engaged on on managing those puts and, and continuing to hold the put options in the portfolio. Okay, understood. Well, thank you very much, Kieran. Certainly one thing that's disputable with Munro is over long periods of time, your investment process has identified great companies that have enjoyed fantastic investment returns. In 2020 through COVID, Munro did a great job for its clients and indeed holding so much cash last year insulated clients from the volatility. So you certainly A, can pick stocks in the growth space, which is your area of specialty and use the, the protection when required judiciously. So thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed our conversation this morning and we look forward to uh, chatting with you at some point in the future. Great. Thanks, Damien. 